What's up, everyone? Welcome again to another episode of Doc's Point of View Podcast. Today, I have another interview for you. It's with an HM3 L03 Alpha. His career has been blue side of his first command, and then he went green side. He's done quite a few TADs, some cool training, and a little bit of humanitarian work. You ever been walking through the Navy Exchange and wonder why all the Naval Pride and Heritage gear is horrifically ugly and you wouldn't actually wear it? Have you ever wanted some really cool gear and you just don't know where to go? Well, I got you, fam. Go to dgutsapparel.com immediately. Get yourself some Naval Pride and Heritage gear you'll actually wear in public. Uh, we're working on new designs all the time, open to ideas. We're trying to create a brand that uh, lets you display that pride, but doesn't make you cringe. Uh, also, if you're willing to and you're able to, please go to patreon.com slash podcast, pick one of the five tiers and become a patron today. I enjoyed my conversation with him and I hope you do as well. Let's get into it. Okay, so welcome. Uh, I think you're my first E4. Nope, that's not, that's wrong. I had Jacob on the other day, um, who was an experienced uh, HM3. But welcome. I'm glad you come out, and I'm gonna kick it off just like every other episode I have. Please give me your experience so far in the Navy as a corpsman, mm-hmm. and maybe tell me uh, why you joined in the first place. Okay. Um, so I joined actually fresh out of high school and it was always my, I mean, it wasn't ever my plan to actually join the military, but I mean, a little towards my senior year, I got senioritis, kind of gave up in high school. Um, and my only options was to, uh, move with my family and do community college or join the military. And I kind of wanted to get away from the nest and everything. So I ended up joining fresh out. And I was actually already really close with my uh, uh, recruiter because uh, I did JROTC in high school and he was one of the parents that helped out a lot. So I was already close with him. He was already kind of in my ear. So maybe that plays a part into why I joined the Navy. But uh, yeah, like growing up, I was an army brat. So moved around a lot, but always like saw my dad in the military, saw uniforms, lived on bases and everything. So it wasn't uncommon. It, at first I thought I was going to join the army and become a 68 whiskey and weighing my options, I was going to either be 68 whiskey or a corpsman. And I'm actually pretty glad I chose to stay corpsman or chose to join as a corpsman. The entire like recruiting process and everything, it went very smoothly. Like my dad was a recruiter for some time. So he told me that like they're going to tell you this, they're going to tell you that, they're going to try to get you to sign immediately and go off immediately and they're going to offer you signing bonuses and everything and just stick to what you want, honestly. So that's really what I did. I told them I want Corman. I'm not going to sign anything unless it's Corman. I went to MEPS, I did the processing, I went to the contractor and they're trying to get me to sign this contract for this thing with a signing bonus of all this and promise me this and I'm like, does that say Corman? No. I'm not going to sign it. And they try to do this and that and that. And I was like, I'm not going to sign anything unless it says Corman. Because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a medic. I wanted to be a helper, really. 
like I know like it's not all other rates don't help and everything it's just I wanted to get that medical background and everything to proceed with my future so you would say it's more of a calling yeah okay well that too and my uncle was also a, a greenside corpsman so I remember him or seeing him go through FMTB and seeing him like work out here and kind so of so you knew what what corpsmen do mm-hmm and you also knew what your dad did as far as a military lifestyle. Yeah. So you were, you were pretty much, you were going to probably end up in the military at some point. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Whether it was as an officer or enlisted. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because, like, the military is not uncommon to me at this point. Like, I grew up in it, basically. Being an Army brat and everything, I've had my entire life seeing the military and my dad coming home and complaining about work and complaining about that. And there's some days he actually let me skip school and like go to work with him. But then he puts me, he'd put me to work like one of his soldiers. (laughs) So like I would sweep the shop or whatever, you know, I wouldn't do anything like that needs training, but I would sweep and clean and do whatever he told me to do. It was probably some of my best experiences, like getting to ride in a tank and everything, getting to ride in all those vehicles as a young child. So, tell me about your dad. What what years did he serve? Ooh, we talking nineties? Um, I think I don't know what year specifically, but yeah, nineties. He did a twenty two and retired in twenty. As so, a enlisted? Yeah, he was he was a E seven in the army. So that's, that's interesting. Like, I had a train of thought. I kind of lost it. <laughs> no, you're good. Uh, what what did what did he do in the army though? I don't know what the MOS is, but I know he was a mechanic. So he worked on trucks, and then once he got high enough, he did admin for people to work on trucks, and then was like, I remember he was telling me like. Oh man, I'm in charge of 76 soldiers. I'm in charge of all these soldiers and getting all these vehicles done and everything. Like, woe is me. And I get it. Like, n- at least now I get it. Like, having that feeling about, dang, my life sucks or whatever. Like, you got all this work to do and you, you can't get it done or you got all this responsibility. And before I was like, why are you complaining? Like, I don't, I didn't understand and everything, but now I kind of do. Like after going through so much and like my, but actually tomorrow makes five years for me. Yeah. Nice. You said five. Mm-hmm. That's. I feel like you start to understand the Navy pretty well around that five six year mark. Mm-hmm. I think the first few years you're kind of lost. In oh, most what, definitely. And what, what terms we use, <laughs> what programs we have. Yeah. After the after the two days of that fleet engagement we had, and mm-hmm. we'll talk about it here in a minute, but what I what I found out by talking to a bunch of corpsmen from different units is that a lot of them don't know anything about the Navy. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that in a mean way. I'm just saying like when I ask them simple career counseling questions, they're like, "What is that?" I definitely feel that was me and my first command and everything. I think everybody, everyone's going to come in and not really understand everything. Mm-hmm. There's just no way. You, there's a learning curve. Yeah. I felt personally that at that five, six year mark, I was, I knew, I knew a majority of how the Navy worked. Mm-hmm. At least, and I say that inside of our community. Outside our community, I still don't know a <laughs> yeah. lot of the Navy stuff. But what year did you join? 
I joined 2018, so fresh out of high school. So did you, and you went to, you went to boot camp, core school in San Antonio. How was the cohesion inside a school? The cohesion between like the branches or? No, no, just the students. Did you have a sense of belonging with the, the students that you're in class with? I mean, yeah, like. Or is we, it kind of just like everyone's there to do their own thing? We definitely formed some cliques after some time. Like at first it was everybody's new or the people that you were in like, you know, divisions with in boot camp. Uh, like a you lot know of them. you go, go to boot camp together, yeah. right? So all of us were like, we're in boot camp at the same time, just not in the same divisions. I know like maybe what, three or four people that were in my division that were in my class in core school and everything. So that was pretty nice. But then like. The, probably the first week or so you just hang out with everybody or whoever wants to hang out and then you form cliques you form friends you form like the groups that you guys will hang out with and everything and then you go on from there it's not like it's kind of like you're all new students and you're all trying to figure out like what's what yeah yeah, yeah. I get it so do you f what was your first command uh, my first command. Well, not the name, but what, what kind of platform did you go to? I went to a clinic at first. Like a small blue side clinic? Yeah, small blue side okay. clinic. Tell me this. Did A school set you up for success going to a blue side clinic? No. Do you, you do you at least think you got the foundation foundational skills you needed? For working at the blue side clinic? Yeah. Um, or did you get there and then all the seasoned corpsmen there teach you how to do your job? It's definitely a lot of OJT. Uh, it's definitely a lot of, like, people, like, showing me how to do things specifically. Uh, it's not, I'm not saying that uh, A school was, like, useless or anything. It did to me give me a good foundation and basis of, like, how to, like, draw labs and how to do this and what is this. And Well, there's just no school that's going to teach you how to do your job. No, I mean, you go to, if you go to nursing school, yeah. which gives you a license, mm-hmm. You still don't know what you're doing until you get to the, until you get into clinicals mm -hmm. and you actually start doing real patient care. Yeah. I just asked that as a general question to see like where your mindset is. Do you think you're set up for failure or not set up for failure, but do, do you think it helped at all? I think course school, ha it has to help. Yeah. I think it helped a lot. It's just, it wasn't the job that I was doing, you know, it, it, it helped with a good basis of the medical field and everything. But then what I ended up doing at the Blue Side Clinic was uh, family care. So I was writing soap notes and just taking vitals. I mean, vitals, it helped, yeah, definitely. But It gave you the basis. Yeah. Or the basics. Yeah. Uh, how was your experience there? I love Blue Side Clinic, so that's like my bread and butter. That is what I'm most <laughs> interested in because I think that's like the, the pinnacle of like your everyday corpsman doing sick call and family medicine and stuff. Um, Where'd you work specifically? I worked in uh, family practice. I was seeing dependents and spouses. So you saw dependents. Retirees. Okay, that's different from what I'm used to. Yeah. I, I only saw active duty members. I feel like it would be very different if I saw a lot of active duty members, but... Uh, when you see only active duty members, it is very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I can honestly say I did not enjoy my time at the clinic. Like, it was day in day out same thing and just passing the time and it was it was just not what I wanted to get out of like being a medic in the military like even if it was taking care of like uh, appointments for 
like active duty and everything, I think that's very different than taking care of like dependents and spouses and retirees without making an appointment just for a medication refill or whatever. I I fully understand what you're saying. And I, I know your frustration because when I had Corman in a family med pediatric type setting, mm-hmm. they got burnt out very fast. And that's because you're doing the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. And maybe you don't feel like you ha- you don't you're not tied to that there's no fulfillment because you're not tied to a mission, mm-hmm. right? You're not tied to the overall medical readiness of a base or a unit or whatever. Yeah. I feel like I feel like that's very hard for a new corpsman because you, you come in and you get this you hear this glorified, you know, description of what a corpsman is mm-hmm. and you get to a family med clinic and you're like, uh, I'm doing some like routine stuff. The problem is that, that that's still very important. Mm. Like family med is very important because if you don't take care of families, the the service member is going to suffer if the family members aren't getting taken care of too, because then they're not going to be able to do put a hundred percent into their day. Mm. Right. Cause they have family members suffering at home. Right. Or if they have family members that aren't getting the medical and medical care they need, are those people going to be able to deploy and go out the door? And if they do deploy and go out the door, are they going to be a hundred percent there for you? Maybe not because mm. they're worrying about their family. Right. Yeah. So, it's very important, but it's hard for a brand new corner to understand that mm-hmm. because you want to, you want to feel some type of fulfillment and tie to a mission. Yeah. And I, it's hard to get that unless you're doing like only active duty because you know, you're impacting the medical readiness of mm-hmm. that person's unit. Or if you go greenside and you go TAD on a humanitarian aid mm-hmm. or a combat deployment or whatever, you're, you're going out the door and doing a mission. Yeah. So I understand your frustration. And I understand that you can get burnt out real quick doing that stuff. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't even say it's just like that day in, day out, same thing, getting burnt out and everything. But like even at that blue side command, I like the leadership wasn't like there for the new corpsman and everything. Uh, not trying to speak negatively about it, but like no matter where you go, you're going to encounter like negativity or, or somebody that you're not going to agree with necessarily. But uh, I, I would see my leadership only help me when it made them look better, but they would always get like bag on me or whatever for when it's like the most minute, minute things that they even they do. So you think that you got micromanaged? Is that yeah, what you're saying? definitely. I see that a lot. It happens. And it's probably a simple answer. They probably weren't trained well or... There's a there's a hard there's a hard hurdle for certain people to go from being the worker bee to delegation. And just about anybody that's in a leadership role has probably had to face that battle or figure out how to turn that off. Like for me, I'm a doer because to make rank and to be promoted and to look get recognized, you have to do things, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to you have to physically do put pushing the buttons and seeing the patients and do and doing all the yeah. things right, but then you get promoted and they're like, "Hey, now you're the LPO." Well, I want to do those things, and I got here because I was an expert at what you're doing, mm-hmm. right? So if you're not doing it as good as I'm doing it, I'm going to micromanage you, right? You see how that makes sense? I get that. That, but that's how sim- that's how simple it can be. Mm-hmm. Is that they want you to do to do the job as well as they do, if not better. And if they don't think you're doing it, you may be doing it, but if they don't think you're doing it that mm-hmm. well, that's where people get into micromanaging. Mm. 
And it's just as simple as they haven't learned how to turn that off and let you breathe and learn how to do the job properly and succeed at, at your own accomplishments. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to do that once you get into an LPO or chief role where you have 12 sailors working the floor and you're like, I, I, I can do the job better than them, mm. but I need to let them do it and teach them how to do it mm-hmm. better than I can do it. And a lot of leadership has trouble learning how to do that. I mean, my, my personal experience with like my leadership at the Blue Side Command, like I was instructed on maybe how to do like a soap note on maybe two or three patients and then they just left me alone and I was figuring it out on my own. I was I was talking to the doctors themselves and seeing how they want it done and everything. So your your experience is not uncommon, but at that specific place it sounds like you got dealt a bad hand. I feel like I did, to be honest. I mean I did have one leader that was like always backing me and everything and always like helping me out and telling me like Hey, this is this is how things are. Like, you got to sell cookies and do your job, but you and can't this just day do and one age, or the other. Have, the Navy deems a well-rounded sailor as someone who's doing unit collaterals, mm-hmm. which isn't just selling cookies and JA. That's a small portion of something. Mm-hmm. And education, volunteering, all these things have to add up as a well-rounded sailor because mm-hmm. you shouldn't just. The Navy thinks you shouldn't just be someone that's good at doing patient care. Or whatever your job is as a program manager, if if you have a job like that, they want to see that you do something for the community. You do a command collateral because it helps the command. Mm-hmm. Which, if you think of it at, at superficially like that, that may that that makes sense, right? A yeah. well-rounded sailor, someone who is engaged at their at their department, they're engaged at their command, and they're engaged with the community. No one's going to argue to say that's not that's dumb. But as an E four, you should be learn. You should be still learning as many qualifications as you can. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you're not. I'm just saying, in general, an E4 should be worrying about patient care, qualifications within the medical field, mm-hmm. qualifications outside the medical field, and then start dabbing into administrative work. That's definitely what I was like trying to do and everything. I mean, uh, well, you know, I recently uh, got slotted for C-School, so I'm excited to go for, uh, forward and move forward with my career in that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Let's get back to your clinic. You did your two years there. Mm-hmm. You left. You came to our unit. Yes. Which we won't name, but you're at a Greenside Command, right? Mm-hmm. And you just you just said you hit your two years here. Um, and if I remember right, your first year or so, you were tasked out pretty heavily. Yes. And then this past year, you've been chill, right? Um, more or less. Um, the op tempo hasn't been terrible. Yeah. Right. It hasn't been terrible, but like there are moments when it's like go, go, go. And then moments where it slows down, but it's, it's not. And that's kind of terrible. nature of the beast at, yeah. at this command. Yeah. But talk to me about your experience here at a, at a logistical greenside command. So let's see. When, when did you report here? Cause I got here in 2020. I got here 2021. Yeah, summertime. Yeah. Because then we, we, me and you both went on the same TAD. Mm-hmm. That's when I think I first met you, actually, out there. Because you were, you were in my team. Yeah. Okay. All right, so that was the first experience you had was TAD. Mm-hmm. So you didn't even get dwell time. Not really, no. Not, I'm not going to say the dwell time. Dwell time is between deployments, but uh, 
Yeah, you went TAD on a humanitarian aid, right? Mm-hmm. Did that change your mindset or outlook on being a corpsman since you came from a what you what you deem as not a positive experience at a, cl- at a clinic, right? And then you came yeah. to a Greenside Command and straight off the bat, you go humanitarian aid. Did that, did that make you have some type of fulfillment or do you feel like you were helping in some way? I would say so, yeah. Um, at first it was like a kind of like a culture shock because I'd never been TAD before that and everything. So, and you never been around that group of people either. Yeah, I haven't. I have never had that experience. So it was real like eye opener and everything. And then actually getting down to like the grid of it and working day in and day out, it kind of sucked. But like, I, it was also like making a difference to me. It was a type B fun, right? It yeah. sucked at the time. Yeah. And at first, it, like, it was really sucky because we we're just like back to back every single day, not not even weekend or off or a day to go to church or anything. But I remember like the first two weeks was chill because we were trying to figure out you know, where we're going to be and we were, we're building doing. up our yeah. medical site. Right. Mm-hmm. And then after the after the, the first chill two weeks and then it hammered down for the next once the patients arrived, like three or four, like 18 or 12 to 18 hour days. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. For like two weeks straight. Yep. And. You didn't even get a day off for the first 14 or so days. And that's, that's, yeah. So that's what I'm getting at. It's, it's interesting because a lot of people that went there, they'd never been TAD slash deployed, mm-hmm. right? It was pretty strenuous working hours, but mm-hmm. if you're on a deployment, you don't get days off, right? No. So a lot of people were griping and complaining about not having time off, but you're like... It was also like the first TAD experience and, and something of That's that sort. That's what I'm sort. saying. A lot of people, field. we had a lot of new guys and they went there and they were complaining and we're like... Well, why are you complaining? I get it. One, because this this is a culture shock for you. Mm-hmm. But why are you p- complaining so much? You suck it up. It's probably going to be a few months, right? Yeah. And it was. It was just a few months. Mm-hmm. And you're actually doing something. I mean, people who came back from that, you know, were recognized for what they did. And you can say five, ten years down the road that you had an impact on something meaningful. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the moment, like... It being a culture shock, yeah, it sucked. But I mean, getting through that and like talking to uh, some season, uh, other seasoned uh, corpsmen and everything, like they just really opened my eyes and was like, "Hey, this is how it is. You know, you're not gonna get days off. You're not working a clinic. You're not lauded these days off or anything." Well, if, oh, big perk is that you have one thing to do. Yeah, show up. Do your job. Do what you home. do the do the specific job you have for those patients, and then go home and sleep. Yep. Work out when you can. Eat. That's it. There's yeah. like there's no extra navy stuff that you have to deal with. You know. Yeah. In fact, sometimes going TAD like that is nice because there's nothing mm-hmm. else you have to worry about. There was times where I didn't enjoy that TAD, but there's a lot of times where I did. I think the cohesion of that TAD mm-hmm. was super tight. Yeah. And I'll never, I'll have friends from that probably lifelong, right? Mm-hmm. And I'll remember people that were there. And if I ever see them later on in my Navy career, mm-hmm. or like you, you'll see other people and like, hey, I remember you from that time. And you, you, you're going to talk the, you're going to talk about it and you'll uh, laugh about it because it was a type B type, <laughs> type yeah. fun, right? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a, looking back now, it was definitely a good experience. It, it was a good change of pace and everything going from clinic to 
to green side or from blue side to green side and then immediately into a TAD like that. It was And shocking, thankfully it wasn't just an exercise. It was like, hey, we have an actual mission and we, yeah. we went there, we yeah. did it. And once we got done with that mission, we came home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. So after that TAD, you came back, what'd you, what'd you do? Um, after I came back, I kind of just harped on my pin, harped on trainings, harped on being ready to go to the next one as soon as it was ready or as soon as whatever yeah, was up. Yeah, because our command's more of a, if you're not TAD or deployed, you're back doing training. Mm-hmm. And at this time, you're still unqualified, right? Hmm? At that time, you are oh, yeah, still unqualified. Oh, yeah, at that time, I unqualified, yeah. And I... I can't remember when you got it, but it was last year sometime, right? Yeah, it was last year before the exam. Yeah, so you were, you were in my platoon, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about your experience getting your FMF pin. Ooh. LCE platform, for those listening. Um, so getting my FMF pin, I definitely did it the wrong way. I tried to focus on 101 and get that down before moving on to any other chapters. And that really helped me back a lot because I would get through two pages of 101 and then three pages of 101, then try to learn 102 and I forget 101. So 101 is definitely a killer. It's just purely memorization and everything. But um, if I can give any advice to anybody that still needs to get their pen and everything, uh, which I actually recently heard this, do one page of 101 and then do 102. Do another page of 101, do 103. Do one page of 101, then 104. So it's like you're building upon it, but you're not harping on the one chapter that's going to be purely memorization. I've never heard it that way, but it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I like it. I could see myself doing it that way. For me, the I had to find out how do I memorize stuff. Yeah. And for me, I had to write it down. So I had you know, spiral notebooks. Mm-hmm. And the the method I would use was I would write down 1775 and 101 until I'd write it down and then I'd keep writing it until I memorized it. Mm. So once I got 101, 1775 memorized, I'd go 1775 and 1776. So I'd keep writing 1775 down, mm. but also 1776. Mm-hmm. And then I'd add another one so I got those two down. Mm-hmm. So then I was writing three. Mm-hmm. And then I was writing four. And I did that until I could write every single date, every single battle, every single person in order without even looking at the book. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, you've written the, you've written down dates, names, and battles a thousand times. Yeah. You're not going to forget it. No. But that's personally to me, yeah. right? So um, I, how'd, you, how'd you learn to study? Uh, I definitely tried the notebook route. I tried like writing it out, reading it and everything. Uh, and saying it out loud, but for me, what worked best, honestly, is uh, talking about it with somebody else. Like, having them quiz me, and then say it, and I repeat it, and then move on to the next one, and then get quizzed on the one before that, and then move on to the next one. That's a critical step before you go to a murder board. Mm -hmm. For me, I was TAD, trying to think. I, I I got here and immediately got put on TAD, which this was COVID period, so it was mm-hmm. COVID related, right? Got pulled off of that TA, TAD just to go TAD to another a different location. Mm-hmm. So I had check-in sheet, check-out sheet, or check-out, check-in, all in one go. Mm-hmm. Like I was going around with two check-in <clears throat> sheets, right? Yeah. And at that, at that, uh, my second TAD here, I had HNs 
quizzing me as a second class with no pen, right, on everything in the book. So I was in my free time. I was in my in my you know room writing down everything, mm-hmm. and then the next working hours, I'd go to them and said, "Here's my book, quiz me." And that's 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 the traditional way to do it, mm-hmm. right? Have someone that has their pen. Don't care what rank they are because mm-hmm. anybody that has their has their pen, you're you're qualified like I'm qualified. Mm-hmm. We're two ranks different. Like yeah, we're still the same level of qualification. Yeah. And it was humbling because I had an HN telling me, "Hey, you're not good enough. Hey, this you're not you're not you're not giving me all the information I'm looking for. Mm. You need to say it exactly like this. We're looking for you to be able to articulate this." Mm-hmm. And they would quiz me until I could get past their way of quizzing me, which is how you get that's how you conduct a murder board. Mm-hmm. So I was basically getting mini murder boards, right? Yeah. So that's why it's critical to do it that way because you're kind of already doing the hard part. Mm-hmm. So that when you get to the murder board, it's just about, can I do it all in one go? Yeah. How long was your murder board? My murder board? Um, let's see. Sorry. Are you good? Um, my first murder board was two and a half hours, and they called it. Okay. So you got through what? 102, 103? 101. 101. Two and a half hours, 101. Yep. And they said, you're not good enough. I was murder, murder boarding with somebody else at the time, so it, uh, um, I was snapping it off, and then with delayed answers and me thinking of his, or said other person's answers, it threw me off and got through 101, and they said, all right, that's it. Somebody, some people know their stuff, some people don't, and if you, go to board, if you were doing fine, they should have kept you going and told the other person to get out. Uh, I think it was like, because after so many times of him getting, or the other person getting asked a question, uh, and I would know the answer, I would say their answer, and then move on to my question, say my answer, and then it was going very well, and then when we got to like the people in 101, that's when I started messing up. Oh, yeah, because yeah, yeah. like, I was I was thinking too much about what, like, what question they're going to ask him next, because... I knew the information. Okay, so after the first one, what'd you do? What was the second one? Uh, the second one, let's see. I'm trying to remember. I think the second one was the one I passed. Yeah, the second one was uh, with another person that was uncalled, obviously. And we actually spent a couple days going back and forth just me and that person quizzing each other and, and going over what we're weak and strong with and where we feel comfortable with in the book and everything. So yeah. our murder board lasted probably two days, but it was going through all of all of core and all of LCE. I liked it. I like it when I hear that it took someone two days to get it done. And I don't mean that maliciously, but it means that they were thorough. Mm-hmm. It either means they were thorough or you were You took your time with answers or a little bit of both, right? I think it was uh, like we, we made sure we were answering properly. And when you say two days, you're talking about you did part of core you uh, know, I for think we got to eight like, or ten hours and then you yeah. came back the next day and did LC for however many hours, right? Yeah. Okay. It wasn't two full days. It was yeah, yeah, yeah. like a day and a half really, but we got through probably like 101 to 112. So what, like 12, 15 hours total maybe? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's fine. That's typical. Mm-hmm. And I'd rather you have that long of a murder board and then come see me for your final than 
the coordinator tell me, yeah, he killed it. He did it in five hours. Like, you didn't do everything. I don't think that's believable. I mean, maybe if they know the book like the back of their hand. Depends on how how well you know the answers. And hesitating the answer is what really slows it down. Yeah. I know when I did mine, I was like just really quick. Mm-hmm. And mine wasn't that long. Mm-hmm. But I didn't give them any room to question what I knew, mm-hmm. right? But I also probably overstudied. Mm. I spent like five days straight after months of uh, months of studying, five days over a 96. I said, screw my 96, I'm just gonna study and then I'm gonna go kill this board and then mm-hmm. be done. And it luckily worked out. Mm. Okay, so you've been TAD. Yeah, you did TAD like once or twice here, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, actually, and then uh, just a few little taskers here and there, right? Yeah. <clears throat> did, I did you a, go to HMTT? Yes. Tell me about that. How was that experience? It was amazing. Like, not only was it fun being in Raleigh and going out with friends and everything, but the actual experience of working at a trauma clinic and everything. It was a real trauma clinic, yes. a trauma center, right? Yes. And tell me about some of the stuff you got to see, patient patient care wise. Ooh. Um, I saw a lot of motor vehicle accidents. I saw, oh, some of my favorite uh, patients I had. Uh, one guy, I think he was like doing woodwork or something. And he uh, basically cut off his hand, but it was still attached by like a, like a little bit. You know? And when you say your favorite, you're saying the most interesting. Yes. Let's clarify that, that yes. you don't get enjoyment <laughs> not, out of someone else's no, uh, it, trauma. It was most interesting because like it was, it was a As lot of hands-on. As a corpsman learning medical stuff, yes. the most interesting ones were yes. what you're saying. Okay, yeah. When I was doing my time here in the ER, there, a guy came in and they they call a trauma alert, right? And mm-hmm. they say amputation is the, you know, the injury. Mm-hmm. This guy was uh, mowing his grass with a push mow, right? Mm-hmm. And he was wearing Hey Dudes, you know, the sandals, mm. They're like canvas sandals. Yeah, yeah. So not protective. He was not wearing protective shoes. Yeah. He, the, the lawn was wet and he was in the ditch. He slipped and pulled the mower up on his Ooh. feet. His, the toes he lost and he brought them in and they were in a cup of ice, like legit, just little nubs of toes. Mm-hmm. He lost, if these are my big, if this is my big toe, mm-hmm. right, he lost those toes. And then for people who are listening, he saved his big toes, he lost an index toe on the right foot, and then he lost two of the five toes in the middle on his left foot. And if you look at that visually, it doesn't make sense. How do, how do you not... There was no injury to the other toes, but the mm. other, but these random ones in the middle were a- amputated mm-hmm. completely. Just pfft. nothing was bleeding. It was controlled bleeding, right? We we mm-hmm. controlled the bleeding, and the dude was stone cold, fine, talking normal, not in mm. pain. And then he called his mother and said, "Hey, guess what? I don't have more. I don't even have ten toes anymore." <laughs> uh, so it, it was nice to see that he had some humor in it yeah. because he wasn't, but you know good and well that guy's going to be traumatized later. Oh, yeah. Because his walk's going to be messed up. Mm-hmm. He probably won't be able to play. It's probably going to be difficult for, difficult for him to do any type of like strenuous activity mm-hmm. without 
you know, the balance of his toes. Yeah. Working here at this trauma center, I got to see a lot of uh, eye-opening experiences. Mm-hmm. But this place is very small scale compared to a Raleigh trauma center. So oh, what yeah. are some other interesting cases you, you got to experience? Um, so as I was saying, the uh, the partial amputation uh, where his, his uh, wrist was basically dangling by like a little bit of skin. Oh yeah, just yeah. some tissue. Literally, just a tiny bit of tissue, and I got a, that was like my first arterial bleed I got to see. Okay, because like they unwrapped it, took off the tourniquet and everything to see how bad it was, and then I saw the arterial bleed like shoot out, and I was like, wow. So it was still actively bleeding. Yeah, it was. Still oh, once they took bleeding. the tourniquet off. Yeah. Okay. It just kind of shot out, and I was like, I've never seen that before. Wow. And then they all jumped on it and everything, and it was like really cool to be a part of that and like actually get take care of, you know. Not not mimic it with mannequins or mimic it with. You're not in training. It's yeah. it's actually it's it's very fulfilling to be able to finally experience real mm-hmm. patient care because, and I'm speaking on your behalf here. It if we go to war or if you ever get put in a combat scenario, you can safely say I know how I I'm experienced in traumatic patient care, mm-hmm. right? And you probably are going to feel way more comfortable than if you didn't go through that training, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, what? What did you see? Anything else that's um, unique in patient care? Um. Did you get to go into any surgeries? Oh, I did actually. I went to a uh, a couple surgeries with uh, one of the most friendly like doctors like, I've ever interacted with. Yeah. He uh, actually invited me to like help in the surgery, not like do anything, but like pass him tools and everything. So I was working with um, the surge tech and like. She would pass me the tools and I'd pass him the tools and everything. So like getting to be like up in it and everything. So it was really cool to be in that like scenario and everything yeah. and actually like watch the surgery happen and everything. You feel like you're, you're a part of something. Yeah. And you, the, the experience is a positive. It's it's positive as in you're helping a patient, right? Yeah. And yeah. Okay. So I, I would say, and I, I think you agree with this, Asian TT is probably it's, it's a really good training to have. Yes, most you would definitely. probably encourage it to any corpsman, right? So, oh, one thing I want to say before we, like, get off the topic of HMTT. Um, so, traction splints. We were trained on how to do them here. We did them in the field, and we did, like, we learned how to do them. Yeah. I did one in HMTT. Like a real one, yeah. A real, like, a real traction splint. How was that? I was like, hey, I know how to do this. Like this, like, okay, hey, so this is bread oh, and butter. That's cool. Okay, that's, that's really cool. So you, you're you saying that mm-hmm. our command has trained you properly yes. and you're able to use a skill that you got in training. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's really cool. So that was like, really like, hey, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, you're not you're not the newbie anymore, yeah. right? You're like, yeah. hey, step aside, I can do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, was, um, we're going to wrap it up here in a minute. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so the last two days... As a career counselor, I was doing the fleet engagement with the detailers and and the C-School detailer. And like you said earlier, you got put into a C-School. What, tell me about which one you got and why you cho- why you chose that one. Um, so I got put into biomedical technician uh, C-School, which um, honestly the reason why I chose it is because even before the military and everything, I was always interested in uh, one, the medical field, and two, engineering. So learning how to fix things that help people. Like, that was always always something I was very interested in. And I have a lot of family that, 
like work or that had worked in the similar field of like medical equipment and everything. So I always wanted to help with that and everything. Um, but not only is it going to be medical, but engineering. I like knowing how things work and how to fix things and solving puzzles and basically like figuring out why it's not working properly. I think biomed is one of the best ones to get, mm -hmm. especially for those who like being a corpsman, but have found out that they aren't so much intrigued with patient care because mm -hmm. you're not doing it. You're, you're, you're fixing the equipment mm -hmm. that helps with patient care, right? So yeah. you still are very vital mm -hmm. in every medical facility. And you, so you, again, you have the flexibility of going anywhere. Mm -hmm. You will most likely be deployed as a biomed tech. It doesn't, it doesn't, excuse me, it doesn't keep you in a hospital, right? Because mm -hmm. even here, you know, there's biomed techs at a specific company that mm -hmm. we know of, right? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you got that. We we got a lot of people in seat schools yesterday, over the past two days. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty pretty sure that one has a bonus, right? Um, yeah, it has a SRB of uh, 45. Right now, it, you know, in another month, it could be different. Oh, yeah, all the time. as of right now. But, yeah, I think that's a good one. I have heard also, though, that it's like a, one of the very difficult C-schools. It's difficult. Yeah, if you ever met a biomed tech, they're all smart. Mm -hmm. So academically, it, it is kind of difficult because you need to be able to, like, read schematics. And you're basically an electrician. Yeah. Right? And a mechanic, like you said. So if you are engineering, if you have an engineering mind, mm -hmm. then you're going to be just fine. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, from a leadership standpoint, I mean, I think you've grown, 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 and progressed well here. Definitely coming from a blue side as an HN, coming here, getting qualified, picking up a rank. But yeah, I, I think from yeah, man to man, uh, I think you've done well, right? And I think you're going to do very well, especially picking up that C school. You're going to pick up a rank or two. And, you know, by seven, eight, nine, ten years, whatever, you're mm -hmm. probably going to be some seasoned first class, hopefully, and killing it. So um, tell me your charge. You're you're like a you're a new guy, kind of, right? You're still in your first contract. Yeah. But tell me what 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 are you going to tell the new guy that's that just joined? What's your what's your uh, what's your advice? A word of advice for a new guy coming in, like into our rate and everything. Yeah, our community. Really, the best thing that I could say is find a good mentor. No matter who it is, no matter if they're one rank above you, two ranks above you, if they're a chief or whoever, find a good mentor. Somebody that's going to care about you and that's going to help you learn. And if not, then there's so many online resources that you can look up yourself and, and find the right way to, or not even the right way to do things, but the thing that the way that it's going to work out best for you, because if you're in my situation, if you were in my situation, they'll let you just float in the water. They're not going to tell you which direction to swim. So when I finally did find that mentor, they told me, Hey, this is how this works. This is how this works. This is how this is going to work. This is what you're supposed to do. So after that, I started swimming to the right direction, really. But a mentor is probably one of the best things that you can do. And it's not just somebody that you vibe with, that, that like, you know, you communicate very well with or you have fun with. It's going to be somebody that is experienced, that cares about your future and your career. 
not just somebody that you get along with. Because you don't have to get along with your mentor as long as, you know, you can understand they're looking out for your future. Or they're, they're teaching you lessons that they learned the hard way. Very well put. I'm not even going to add anything to that. Very well put. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We'll wrap it up. I appreciate you coming out. Hopefully, maybe one day you can come out again. So, thank you. Thank you.